This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Siemens, ingenuity for life. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. What does corporate responsibility mean in 2019? In this segment, Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan talks about the corporate obligation to employees, customers, suppliers in the environment. Good evening, everyone. Um, I'm Michael Duffy. I'm an op-ed editor here at the Washington Post, uh, and I'm pleased to be joined by Brian Moynihan, the CEO of Bank of America. Thank you for coming, Brian. Thank you. Uh, before we start the conversation, I just want to remind everyone uh, in the room and who may be watching online that you can send us questions at uh, hashtag postlive, and we'll try to get to them on this device they've given me here, which I'm sure I don't know how to operate, uh, before we finish. Um, anyway, on to Brian. Sure. This is, it's great to have you. Thank great you. To be here. Um, we're talking about the Business Roundtable statement. Um, and you have managed through recession and recovery, deregulation and regulation. You run the second or third largest bank in the, in the, in the United States. Um, and you've watched mergers come and go in your category for the last decade. Talk to us a little bit about what the statement means for Bank of America. And if you can, what it means for the country. Sure. I, I think you heard it some of the uh, earlier commentary, but basically, we at Bank of America believe that we have to th drive a thing we call responsible growth. We've got to grow because it, that means we're successful. We've got to do it on a customer focus. We've got to do it with the right risk, and it's got to be sustainable. And this is about being sustainable. This is about producing great returns for shareholders and delivering on what society needs from us. And if you think about the history of banking and how banks came along, um, we came from society up. I mean, we were formed in communities. Our, the oldest part of our bank is the second bank in the United States, formed by some people in 1784, creating a bank. But and so we've had this. And so the BRT was important. The statement, as referenced earlier, uh, there was an old statement that said it was all about shareholder maximization. The team that worked on Alex Gorski and, and, and the colleagues that you hear from later from the BRT realized that we had to move that forward to the way we actually run the companies. And so I think it was important for myself and my colleagues to sign that to show society that we are running these companies across a broader set, set of constituencies. But don't forget, we have to deliver the shareholder returns and do the good works because if we don't deliver the shareholder returns, some other managers can be put in there relatively soon. So, and they may take a different strategy. So these CEOs, I think, we're running the companies this way. It codifies it and it makes it an important part of what we do. And it's part of the larger movements going on around the world that we can talk about. Yeah. So you're a company with more than 200,000 employees. Um, and all of us can see that what employees and customers expect in the last decade has sure evolved quickly. So what does it mean uh, in terms of having responsibility to your uh, cu customers, but also your employees in a way that it didn't perhaps a decade or two ago? Well, one of the things you think about, um, and I'm the chair of the International Business Council, which is under the World Economic Forum, which that group of CEOs assigned like principles, obviously, uh, based on Klaus Schwab's work over the last 40 years, uh, 50 years now. But if you think about the, the basic tenets of thinking about a company and how you drive it, you know, at the end of the day, we, society has told us, we, we have a tagline, what would you like the power to do? That's our new advertising uh, tagline. If you ask the world that, they spoke a few years ago when the SDGs were developed by the United Nations, the Sustainable Development Goals. You asked 100 some countries, 190, whatever it is, they came back and told you. And so we as society have to drive those changes. The problem with it is it costs $6 trillion a year. And charitable giving is about $800 billion a year. That's not going to do it. Mm -mm. If you emptied all the foundations and endowments and everybody says, well, take all the money and just give it to it, that's about a trillion and a half. 
the U.S. government budget operating-wise, $4 trillion. They got to spend some money on some other things. And by the way, they're running a deficit. So where's the money going to come from? It's going to come from aligning capitalism to the SDGs so that you can make money and produce the results and sustain it then. Because then it's a, it never, you know, like Jim Collins says, the, the flywheel. The flywheel turns and you just keep seeing the activity. What have you learned as you've tried to realign, or maybe not realign, but further align capitalism towards some of these goals uh, at, at Bank of America? What have you, what have you come away the, discovering? The best example might be in the environmental space. So if you go back to when we made our first com commitment in environmental, so one of the SDGs, I think a six is the environmental one. If you go back and said what we made in 2000, seven, we committed 25 million, and then we moved it to 50 million when I became CEO. Then I, we moved it to 125 billion, excuse me, not million, billion. And now we just announced 300 billion, which brings us to 450 billion over basically 07 to 2030. So just step and think of that number. Right. So one is, what do we do to achieve that and how we do it? So, one, so we made the environmental commitment, and through financing, we do about $20 billion a year financing for companies and things, uh, and enterprises to help them make the transition to the new energy future. Uh, that's with all kinds of companies, power companies, um, startup companies, and everything in between. But importantly, it's how we operate. So you start with how we operate. We decided that we would be carbon neutral, and we are carbon neutral by next year, 2020. So you have the whole, a high, the whole bank. The whole bank. And it will have to buy credits, and those credits will go to great, do great projects to create better alternative uh, sources of fuel. But basically, the idea is you're carbon neutral as an operator. Our buildings are LEED Platinum certified. If we can get them there, they're old ones, we have to wait. We gave our teammates uh, a credit for $3,000 to buy a hybrid car. We reduced our own emissions dramatically over the last 20 years, and now we've agreed to be carbon neutral. So it's how you operate, then how you run your business, the financings we do, and then how you actually help research to figure out answers. So we work with universities and others to find research to fund research to help figure out some of these answers, of how, you know, how you can do some things, uh, commercialize some things about sequestration of, of CO2 or things like that. So if you think about all those things, the impact we have, how we operate, how our teammates live and operate, how we use our, our core business principle, and, and by the way, it makes money. And so it's the right thing to do for the shareholders on top of that. You know, somebody said to me, I was interviewing a business leader a few weeks ago, and we were talking about the principles, and uh, he said to me, you know, uh, uh, capitalism needs to change, and if we don't change it, we're going to find out that people who aren't capitalists will change it. Um, does that ring true to you? And, and is it partly because the government isn't moving fast enough uh, to, to address this, or is it also because some of your customers and your employees expect this? Well, you, you, there's a lot of people are talking about capitalism, and a lot of them have names that gives a B. So Bono, the rock star, will talk about how capitalism needs to be tamed. And, Benioff will talk about the capitalism we know has changed, and, they, and then uh, Warren Buffett will talk about how capitalism is the best system, but you need to have a safety net for those who are going to have the same opportunity due to uh, something, not the same education. So the reality is we're talking about opportunities. So it's not capitalism versus socialism. It's more about can you create enterprises like ours that create opportunity for 200,000 plus teammates, the 500,000 family, uh, family members that we ensure and support with, through those teammates, the retirees we support, the communities we give 250 million of, of, of charity a year and four and a half billion dollars of low and moderate income housing development. You know, how can you create enterprises which have capitalism align? And that's the key is the alignment of the investors and the operators to drive the change. And so that's what they mean by changing capitalism. But I, I'm not so worried that who's going to define it. I think most of us believe we can do this. 
being a leader of a, of a bank like this, particularly one that's at the front lines of this, uh, how is it, uh, they don't teach you in CEO school that you're also going to have to affect global change on a massive scale. So uh, what's it like to wake up every morning and discover that any one of these issues might be uh, front and center uh, at the top of your inbox that day? It, it, you know, you have to listen to your customers and your team and, and the communities we operate in, and, and they'll tell you that. And so whether, you know, I remember when I first became a corporate strategist, you were taught, we, I wrote my first corporate strategic plan in 1993 or four for a company, and I got you know, chastised because I said, you know, customers, uh, uh, employees, and shareholders, and, I, and the, somebody said to me, no, banks are about communities too. So this is not something new. This is something, literally when I wrote my first strategic plan as a corporate strategist, I had to, I, I had to figure it through. So it, these are not new concepts, but you, so you don't wake up to it and say, now I'm dealing with this. You basically wake up to, you got a, a, a wonderful business, a wonderful company, a wonderful set of customers, and a wonderful set of communities, and a wonderful set of teammates. And so a lot of times when we think about issues, it comes through the eyes of the teammates. You, you're not gonna be a great employer, you know, you're not going to be the best place for people to work um, if you don't provide great things to them, but also if you don't help them achieve what they want to achieve, which is around these types of issues. But you also have to deal with issues you can't expect. I know last year the bank uh, decided to cut off credit for manufacturers of military-style weapons after employees, uh, you know, had asked, uh, had been affected by gun violence themselves. Um, can you see uh, the company taking, the bank taking uh, positions on other issues as they arise? And, and how do you prepare for that since it can come from anywhere at any time? Yeah, I think this is one of the things to be careful. There are issues like that, and there's issues like HB2, which is the law in North Carolina that mm -hmm. got passed uh, that we had to take a firm stand on, that are more about the, um, that are sort of one thing. And then there's business issues and how you run the, uh, the company on, say, the environment or the employee practices. So. On the issues that, like that, the employees, we had about, a, at the time, probably 120 people who were, you know, horribly lost a family member, um, or had a, a family member, husband, wife, et cetera, or a relative in those settings. Um, and you just sort of, they kept saying, we gotta figure out something we can do. And that was the decision. It wasn't, it was more based on that type of thing. Same with HB2, we had employees who were diverse that would not come to the corporate headquarters for the DNI award ceremony because it was scheduled to be there. And they said, we can't have it there because this, this uh, state has passed a law. And working with the governor and the legislature, we were able to get that law pulled back and, 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 and change it. So they're all a lot driven by the employees. Um, talk one more question about the employees. There's a, a phrase that's in vogue in, 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 in workplaces now that encourages employees to bring their whole selves to work. I suspect as a CEO, you can almost never bring your whole self to work. But talk to us about a little bit about what that like when you have 200,000 employees and um, all the issues that could come up. This is a this is a completely different challenge than one we, uh, I guess, experienced when we started in the workplace 40 years ago. So I think, you know, I've been the chair of our diversity inclusion council for since 2000s before I CEO, say 2007, I think it was. And one of the issues we had, you had diversity representation statistics. So men, women, people of color, those types, all the layers in the organization and how you drive that through. But we really wanted to define what inclusion meant. And, and so we went out and, so, and people started saying, well, let's go out and do research that the council did. And we finally then said, let's just ask people what they want. And so we went out and surveyed our teammates or select group of them, thousands, and said, what do you, what do you want? And one of our teammates said the way we define inclusion at Bank of America is, said the following, I want to become 
be able to come to work every day and come through the door and not leave myself on the outside and have to pick it up on the way home. And that was a simple articulate statement where you're trying to achieve, which is you want people to be able to do all they can do in the company and be themselves at work and be able to be successful and never feel it's a hold back. Or, that's inclusion. That is wholly different than diversity statistics. Right. And, right. and you're seeing people move that. And so I think the travel's been from probably when you and I started in business, uh, or started in thing, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you went from you know, just getting the numbers of representation up, but to now it's, okay, you have this diverse group. Are they really working together? Are they really seeing each other? Can they have a courageous conversation of, of, about a subject of disagreement? Remember, at 200,000 people, we have people on both sides of the aisle that think about it. They're all over the world, all over the country. And so they may have a difference of opinion on any issue we take or any issue that's affecting them. But how can they have that courageous conversation? So we'll have a courageous conversation about, after Charlottesville, we had one in the, comp had in the company about the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. We had veterans that had never talked about it. And right. other teammates got to learn about them. And Ken Burns uh, did the film we sponsored. So it's, it's really about getting people to, uh, to have that discussion and have it. And it's, it's, uh, it's it's something we're pretty proud of. I know you talked to a lot of other uh, chief executives and people in the C-suite. Since the, uh, the statement has come out from the roundtable, as you have uh, met with other CEOs, has there been any reaction that has surprised you? Because uh, I'm sure they talked to you about it, given your role. Is there, has there been a, have you been surprised by the positive reaction? Have you been surprised by the head scratching? Um, anything that uh, after, it's been almost exactly th three months, I guess, yeah. since it was August? I think the big thing that's going on, um, the BRT sort of codified a, a, a redefinition of purpose, and that was terrific. But the big thing that's been going on behind that is actually the movement to the investors and asset owners, the people who invest their money with you know, BlackRock and Larry's letters and things like that that everybody knows about. But the people who invest behind it, mm -hmm. people on our company, their view of what they want companies to do on a rational, important thing. And so that's the big change. And I think what the BRT brought out was more discussion among CEOs that, wait, your shareholders expect this of you. And so we have a unique purview, because remember we have the way we operate the company, but we also have the biggest research, best research platform in the world, and they've done a lot of research that basically will establish that if somebody doesn't score well on ESG, if you went back and looked at the companies that didn't score well and followed them across the last couple of decades, you would be able to avoid 90 plus percent of all the bankruptcies. Mm -hmm. They're still trying to see if it's a true outperformance. Now, ironically, the 181 people assigned the thing of outperform the index in our industry, I actually checked that just to see. So it's good for business. So it's good for business. But the interesting thing is if you can avoid the losers, that's a big deal for an asset manager. And then, so not only is it the right thing to do, and that, that's not a debate, the question is it also helps them, which then you can align that capitalism, that, that investor capital, to the companies that are doing the right things, so to speak, around the fullest dimension. And if you get that aligned, everybody will be dragged in. So go back to the environmental one. If we get all the companies in the world to commit their environmentally, um, th that they have a carbon neutral commitment by some year, and that's tough for an oil and gas company, and some have committed to 2050 that they'll be in carbon neutral. Think about the impact that has on consumption and demand for alternative and other sources of power over the next 20, 30 years if every company all the major consumers of electricity have scheduled out when they're going to change. And so you can have triggers that the investors can then look at and get that alignment that will drive them to there. And that's, that's the kinds of things we're thinking about. Right. So while we may think about customers or employees, this is a whole other realm of the, the, the statement because of uh, investors. Because investors have, technology allows you to have, you could walk into our uh, Merrill team or our private bank team and say, I want you know, the S&P 500, but I don't want 
pick your, pick your stocks, and we can take them out of it and give you the portfolio, because technology allows us to do that to, you'd have a big portfolio, but to a relatively small portfolio. And that, that's different. So people can actually almost to the micro level make decisions about you know, ESG funds, yes, but... what they're gonna invest in. And so that means the capital's being channeled mm. against these tasks. So there, therefore you have the interesting and, right? Produce great returns and do well. And the investors are gonna invest in companies who do well for their employees, their customers, their shareholders, and their society. And suddenly you have this nice thing that then gets you the six trillion you need. Right, would you call that a hidden impact of the, of the statement? I think it's a hidden impact of the statement. And, and the, it's just, the topic is just more out there so you hear more people discussing it and the investors are more clear about what they're expecting. And it's still, it's still coming on. When you have the CEO of the second largest bank in the country, you can't get away without talking a little bit about the economy. Sure. So tell me, what are you seeing right now? Well, in, in the U.S. economy, um, you're seeing basically a, a consumer economy that's very stable, very, you know, from employment, from wage growth, not as fast as we'd like, but growing. You see the spending, and the unique view we have is of, of the spending. So through, you know, January, for the year to date through November 18th, the amount of money spent by our consumers is about $2.5 trillion, and that's up 5.8% over last year, same time frame. And it's been consistently rising a little bit during the year, especially in the second, third quarter, and into this quarter. So that bodes well. If the U.S. consumers spend and are employed, that's a good thing for the world's economy. It's a good thing for the U.S. consumer. On the business side, all the things that you all write about every day, whether it's the trade negotiations, whether it's Brexit, whether it's the what's going on here in Washington, all that creates more uncertainty around the business side of the economy, but with a final demand from consumers in the U.S. So we feel very good about the U.S. economy in a sense that it should grow 1.7 next year, 1.7 a year after is our early estimates, and be in the low twos this year. Now that's three, down from three to 2.3 to 1.7. In the world, we have it about 3.1, and it's much more complex because Europe is still sorting out things in China and India and Brazil and places, but, but the reality is the world is not, growing that fast that it, it'll grow in a quarter probably be okay. So we're in the, this is the longest recovery in history. Yeah, yeah. Um, is there anything uh, that worries you in particular? And uh, can you just talk a bit about negative interest rates since there's something like 17 trillion in negative debt out there, which I know isn't happening in this country, but you know, talk to us about what, that, what the implications of that are, if you can. Well, we don't need negative interest rate in this company because our economy is stronger. I mean, we, that's the thing. And we, we, are, we are in kind of a place where we have, you know, Fed funds rate uh, that's, you know, just come down by 75 basis points to be more accommodative to help push the economy forward when you saw some bumping around. But the reason why we have positive interest rates is our economy is growing at 2% plus. And other economies in the world are not. And that's why they need negative rates. And so I think it's, it, a lot of people come out a lot of ways, but the reality is that people need those things because they're very unusual and they're in countries that have very difficult growth problems. And so, yes, there's seven trillion of bonds that would theoretically trade with negative rates, but the reality is, is those economies that they're attached to are, are growing at slow rates. And so we should feel good that the U.S. has positive rates. We should feel good that the rate structure is uh, positive. And negative rates have been true in Europe for the last five years. And their economy is basically not is growing less than one percent every year. So, and then in Japan, it's a different story. So the question whether it's a proven strategy, and you're seeing that debate start to emerge, in it, whether it works, for lack of a better term. And so we feel, you know, we feel it's uh, it's not a wise way to go about trying to establish there needs to be fiscal spending, which we're doing a good job in this country. Um, but uh, other countries need to push harder on the fiscal side. Um, 
there's been a lot written in the last couple of weeks about the prospect of a new kind of competitor out there for banks, um, whether it's a Google or an Amazon or who knows what else are thinking about these platforms. Do those, do you, have you got your eye on those? Do they worry you? I know there was a survey today in American Banker about community bankers being uh, concerned. You're not exactly a community banker, but um, talk to us a little bit about what, what that holds or, and whether you welcome it or worry about it or what. Well, in the end of the day, we look at all competitors and try to figure out what they're doing, what their appeal would be, and what they see in the customer versus what we see. But you really need to step back. At Bank of America today, we have about a, a billion six of consumer interactions a quarter, and a billion five of them are digital today. We have 38 million uh, digital banking customers today. Uh, 30-odd percent of our sales are all digital. So we're a huge, you know, the logins to our website, the mobile uh, banking application, these are huge numbers. So we're already a big digital place, especially on the consumer side where people talk about it. So we study all, whether it's fintech, small, big, or large, what they're doing, thinking about the structure. But I think that the key is that you do step across the line when you have the trust, you have customers' money. And, and so that's why this industry has a set of regulations around it that are not, that are time, these have been going on for years. Before the Fed existed, there was banking regulation. And before the OCC existed, there was banking regulation. So, you know, the idea of uh, regulating uh, banks and stuff. So I think one of the things we have to be careful is with all these competitors that we make sure we don't forget the basic principles. If you take deposits and make loans, society wants regulation around you because you end up with a, a lot of people's money. And, and if something goes completely, it's a problem. Do you think there'll be a time when there are no sort of brick and mortar banks that this will all just move into the, into the ether, into the cloud? Um, not if the customers uh, don't change. I mean, we have, so as much as we do all that digitally, yeah. uh, today, you know, by this time tomorrow, 850,000 people come into our branch, uh, the wonderful branches, the wonderful teammates to serve them. What you've seen has changed dramatically is the nature of what goes on at a branch. They're less of them, they're bigger, they have more relationship management because a lot of the routine tasks 20 years ago where somebody would hand a check for deposit have been taken to the mobile phone or the ATM. And so it, we, the teammates there, you know, and, you know, I need, my mom's sick, I need to figure out how to handle accounts, I need a notary, things are much, I need a home loan, I need a car loan. And so I, I when I first became a, a strategist I talked about earlier, they, you know, people came in, so all the bank branches will be gone in 20 years, well, it's <laughs> more than 20 years, 23, 24 years, and there, we still have 4,100 of them, so they're critically important to structure, but you have to have both. You have to be digitally high touch, high tech, as we call it. Let's go back and finish on the, on the round table on the statement. Um, uh, let me turn the question around a little bit. Uh, was there something that has come out of them and the, um, the, the support by 180 different CEOs that uh, you didn't expect and that you've seen in the first three months, particularly in the, in the, in the way of, a, of initiative or a, um, uh, an application that perhaps even you didn't yeah. and, and the rest of the people well, didn't really anticipate? One of the things we've been doing is sharing a lot more what we do. So it, it, you saw sharing what we do as best practice stuff. So what you see around people. And so the, 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 the big di you know, discussion in society now is how do we train people for the next jobs, the fourth industrial revolution, you know, the impact of AI and uh, uh, 
and all kinds of technology, which has been true for years. So in 1969, the US had 70 million people working out as 150, and there's a lot of technology deployed during that. So you can do this. The question is what the jobs are gonna be. So in our company, we hire about 25,000 people a year. We retrain 17,000 people. So uh, that get uh, you know, retrained in the new jobs and move within the company. We, so I think what you're seeing is uh, the CEOs in the business roundtable and otherwise, you'll see a lot of best practices that are um, displayed around, whether it's on environmental practices, whether it's on employment practice, right. while on training, whether it's on skills, skill development, pushing for changes in, like in our industry, it's more unique to us than others. We had a restriction that just is getting lifted as we speak of the inability to hire somebody with any kind of criminal past. Uh, you know, people thinking about the check the box, things like that. You're seeing these CEOs seeing that in the context of, of the statement as opposed to a bunch of a series of one-off initiatives. You also had an announcement a few weeks ago about minimum wage. Yep. Talk to us about that. Well, we, we've... Uh, it was more than a few weeks, actually. Yeah, well, we, we, we've now announced that we will have, by next quarter, first quarter 20, we'll be at uh, $20 an hour as the minimum starting wage in the company. And we were gonna do that by the next year, but we moved it to year forward, so... How come? Pardon? How come? Uh, it, it really is that we, we going back to the thing, we, we, we our efficiency ratio is strong, our ability to invest is strong, we want to share the success with our communities and our teammates, and you know, it's, it's the reality of the labor market's tight, that we also have to attract 20,000 people a year, and, and it, it, you need to pay them. And so between that and our benefit structure, you know, our, our living wage equivalent you here talked about is, is like you know, another $15 or $20 for benefits, and we feel very proud of that. So we've gone from basically, uh, over the last, seven, eight years, we've gone up $8 an hour for starting wage since 2010, I think. A tour de raison in 30 perfect minutes. Thank you, Brian. Uh, that's all that time we have uh, right now. Thanks for coming. Thanks for talking. Thanks for doing also a great job of kind of interviewing himself. I really appreciated that. And thank you all for being here. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.